Hello, fellow fans of Pontifex. If you're listening to this, then I can only assume that you, like me, love stories of historical figures. And if you do, then I think you will also love Human Circus, Journeys in the Medieval World. The history podcast where I, your host Devin, follow the stories of medieval travelers and explore the events that they were part of. We've gone in the company of Friar Giovanni Carpine and of Marco Polo to Mongol lands. We've been to see the Ottoman Sultan with gifts from the Queen of England. We travel with mystics, merchants, and monks, ambassadors, and crusaders. And we uncover a medieval world that's much more interconnected than you might think. Join me on Human Circus Journeys in the Medieval World. Available everywhere you get your podcasts and at humancircuspodcast.com. It's a new pope. It's a new day. Hello, and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 24, Pope Lucius I. Lucius, like Malfoy? Yep. Yep, definitely. Nice. (laughs) So, this Pope Man, um, this is probably going to be a short episode, so gear in for that. Buckle up, except only... I'm trying to say that less. Because <laughs> I always say, let's get into it, or buckle up, and when you listen back to it all the time, you become aware of your own verbal idiosyncrasies. Oh my god, every single time. You're just like, oh, I say that constantly. Mm-hmm. And you and I have some of the same verbal idiosyncrasies, so it's always kind of funny. Like, we like to say things like absolutely or categorically. And although we've just gotten here, I'm going to tangent right off because I got laughed at at my job the other day because I said snapped like a Midwesterner. And I was like, <laughs> my best friend is from Chicago. They're like, that explains everything. Whoops. So you're rubbing off on me. Uh huh. Oh, when, um, when I talked to the Texas girls for too long, they developed my idiosyncrasies. You think you'd pick up theirs more than, than the other way around, but all right. <laughs> no, no, I only go real Southern if I'm angry. So Pope Lucius, we know almost nothing about his early life. Uh, so. Oh no, this was that Pope where you're like, what happened? Yeah, um, no, that one's still coming. <laughs> No, more, more sad, sad popes with nothing to show. This one we actually have a a little bit. We just, uh, we don't know a whole lot about him before he became pope. So he was probably born around the year 200 in Rome, and his father's name was Porphyrianus, who was a Tuscan from Lucca. That's a thing. A little bit different. Not Rome exactly, but Tuscany. Around, yeah. It's about an hour and a half by train now, so, you know, it's it's a it's a jaunt. That's not that far. It was a jaunt in the ancient period, for sure. Oh yeah, for sure. So, we can assume that they were probably Christian, and that he entered the church and was part of the clergy, but we have to assume this, because literally every other source I read about him says, nothing was known of Lucius before his election. He didn't show up like Fabian. No, he didn't. He was he was definitely a Christian church man. But uh if he was interesting in any way whatsoever, we don't know about it. Yeah, well I mean they do that sometimes. They're just like, 
I can't choose any of you guys. It's going to be this man in the corner here. And maybe it moderate was what they were looking for. So recapping from last week, our former pontiff Cornelius had been arrested and exiled to Civita Vecchia. To the beach. Yeah, just basically the beach area of Rome under the restarted persecutions of Emperor Gallus. And when word of his death comes back to Rome, the church is not going to wait around to elect a successor, because we know what happens when that happens. They get forbidden to, and we don't have popes for over a year. Yeah, don't let them know, just elect one before someone makes a law. And so they jump right on it, and they elect Lucius to the position on June 25th of 253. We can assume either he had made some mark of distinction, or they were just like, really, hurry up, vote for anybody. Anyone's fine. It's Pope now. Pope Lucius. With that in mind, and knowing nothing else about it, we can jump into his papacy. The Liber Pontificalis wants us to know that Lucius passed a new decree that two priests and three deacons should always accompany a bishop, quote, to bear witness to his virtuous life. Like, just follow him everywhere? Yeah, uh, bishops are now required to have a posse to witness me. Mediocre. So, obviously, again, this is very untrue, because it makes no sense to be using the very small, very fractured, very decimated church members to just follow around a bishop for witnessing, but, you know... And also, this isn't indicated anywhere to be like a bodyguard situation, which that's the only thing that made sense to me at the time when I was reading it. I'm like, maybe they're just there in case of persecution, but... But then they would all get rounded up, or would the bishop, like, duck out while someone else was getting arrested? Well, maybe the priests and the deacons had to take a little bit of self-defense, you know, to witness their virtuous bishop and protect him. Yeah, like some guards come up with cudgels and start beating one guy and the other one goes, no, it's time to go. Exactly. Um, but there's no evidence that they thought about this as a safety measure. It was literally just to witness the virtue, so. Witness the virtue. Witness me. So... Clearly not a thing. LP agenda strikes again. And all the useful information that it's going to give us here is that he also had two holy ordinations, four priests, four deacons, seven bishops. Those seven bishops now need two priests and three deacons each. He definitely did not ordain enough people to follow these men around. Nope. No, he did not. Just making things more difficult. Now... As the newly elected pope, the one thing that Lucius has to contend with, besides the awful persecutions, is the schism that we discussed last week, and decide whether or not he is going to confirm the position that Pope Cornelius took. Little recap of that situation, if you are listening to this podcast in the future, or for some reason picked up this episode out of order. Somewhere. During the persecutions, Christians were made to make sacrifices to pagan gods or be executed. And the church has come to some serious disagreement about what to do with the people who made the sacrifices rather than die. And these people are called the lapsi. So Cornelius had supported a policy of forgiveness for the lapsi and welcomed them back to the church after a period of penance 
Whereas Novatian felt that the act of performing idolatry, sacrificing to a pagan god, was unforgivable and these former Christians should be refused re-entrance to the church. The larger church had supported Cornelius and he had been elected pope and Novatian had refused to acknowledge him and declared himself pope and caused a schism and set up his own bishops in competition with Cornelius and his clergy. Maybe they're having all those priests and deacons follow around the real bishops so that there's not like a bishop punch out. <laughs> Thank you for doing that as soon as I took a sip of water. <laughs> I'm here to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> just just spray it all over my microphone. That would be great. Gotta buy a new one. It's true. Join our Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Buy me a new microphone when I ruin it out of laughter. So that's the situation that we're in, and Lucius has to decide, okay, do I agree with what Cornelius did, or am I going to go and maybe, like, pull the Novatianists back in? And, you know, it reasonably stands to reason that this would actually be the answer. So fortunately for the church, Lucius upholds Cornelius's decree on the issues in agreement with Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage who had been Cornelius's biggest supporter. Could you imagine what might have happened if this new pope decided that Novatian's position was the one that should win out? Mm, we'd not have that many people in the church. This would have been a whole new mess to deal with, and it probably would have gotten very ugly. Interestingly, we actually have Lucius's own opinion on upholding this decision, written by Lucius himself, to the man who would succeed him. I'm not going to say who that is yet, but this letter has been preserved by Cyprian. So um, this is one of those situations where we have a church historian who quotes these letters. It's not the original letters themselves, but Cyprian's work gets preserved. So the letters he's quoting gets preserved. So he says about the lapsi. For they, filled with the spirit of the Lord and confirmed in glorious martyrdom, judged that pardon ought to be given to the lapsi, and signified in their letters that when they had done, when these had done penance, they were not to be denied the enjoyment of communion and reconciliation. So basically, Cornelius had been a glorious martyr for the church, and he had decided that the lapsi should be brought back into the church, so that settles it. Yeah, I mean... Makes sense. He's going to go on to be a saint. Cornelius is a saint. So, you know, maybe don't try to overturn what the saint said. Don't be rude. So, like Cornelius, Lucius is rejecting the Novatian ideals and condemning Novatian himself for instigating a schism. And for this opinion, he is unsurprisingly praised by Cyprian, who wrote Lucius many letters. Fanboy continues. <laughs> but... This is about all that Lucius has time to do as Pope, because very shortly after being elected, Lucius is confronted with that ongoing persecution under either Gallus or Valerian, depending exactly when in 253 this happened. Knock, knock, knock. It's persecution. It's the persecution. And it's one of two persecutions, so... He obviously refuses to cooperate with the demanded sacrifice and the suppression of the church, so he continues to follow in Cornelius' footsteps and was exiled to Civita Vecchia as well. 
beach exile sounds like the best time. But we know how well this goes for people who go to exile. It's true. But wait. There's more. The liver pontificalis tells us that something miraculous happens next. It's not really that miraculous, but okay. So somehow, in some way, Lucius is granted permission to return from his banishment to Rome. We have no idea why, or how, or what circumstances prompted the permission. The only theory that we have is that he was initially exiled by Gallus before his death in August, so that when Valerian took over as emperor in October, he wasn't as hostile to the situation yet, since maybe, like, he will definitely get on to Christian persecution later. So maybe just in that small little transitionary period, he got on the good graces of the emperor? One idea. Beach vacation is a dumb exile. Come home. Yeah. And there's this, also this, like, maybe tiny, tiny small chance that the emperor in between the two, because there is one named Emilianus, uh, who maybe somehow had time to grant this permission in his very, very, very short tenure as emperor, but we don't know for sure. But he gets to come back. So that's pretty cool. And he apparently comes back to crowds of people who are super excited to see him. That stressed me out. Uh, really? I mean, like, come on. No pope has been able to come back from exile. They all just die in the mines. Or die on the beach, so... Die on the beach. Not the worst way to go of the choices. So we have Cyprian recording this moment with glee, and he says, He had not lost the dignity of martyrdom because he had the will as the three children in the furnace. What? What children? Why are they in a furnace? I don't like that. Apparently this is like a biblical story thing that he's referencing back to. It's an allegory. Um, three holy children in the book of Daniel. Here's the full quote. He had not lost the dignity of martyrdom because he had the will. As the three children in the furnace, though preserved by God from death, this glory added a new dignity to his priesthood that a bishop assisted at God's altar who exhorted his flock to martyrdom by his own example as well as by his words. By giving such graces to his pastors, God showed where his true church was, for he denied the glory of suffering to the Novatian heretics. The enemy of Christ only attacks the soldiers of Christ. Heretics he knows to be already his own and passes them by. So two things out of this. He uh, basically means that Lucius is now considered to be one of those confessors like Calixtus had been because they had undergone some suffering for Christ, but they were not martyred. And also, he is saying that, oh, clearly God likes Lucius better because he allowed him to suffer for him, rather than Novation, who's clearly just a heretic. Weird logic, but that's a thing. He also wrote directly to Lucius to congratulate him on his triumphant return, and he says this, Beloved brother, only a short time ago we offered you our congratulations when in exalting you to govern his church God graciously bestowed upon you the twofold glory of confessor and bishop. Again we congratulate you, your companions, and the whole congregation in that, owing to the kind and mighty protection of our Lord, he has led you back with praise and glory to his own, so that the flock can again receive its shepherd, 
the ship her pilot, and the people a director to govern them and show openly that it was God's disposition that he permitted your banishment, not that the bishop who had been expelled should be deprived of his church, but rather that he may return to his church with greater authority. So yeah, he's really excited that Lucius is back. He's like, this is fantastic. Glory be to God. He just wanted everyone to see that you are now a living confessor. He bestowed the special blessing on you. Screw those novationists. We are where it's at. And then, shortly after his return to Rome, Lucius dies. What's he die of? Uh, there isn't any evidence or thought to how he died. Oh. Um, and by the way, he died on March 4th of 254. Only the Liber Pontificalis says that he was martyred by beheading, but of course we know that the Liber Pontificalis wasn't written until way, way after his death, and no one supports this idea since Valerian would be okay with the Christians for a couple of years, and even Cyprian, in a later letter, refers to Cornelius and Lucius only as honorary martyrs. Can we uh, wait it out and write noms? Well, I mean, come on, everything else is just made up at this point, so we can say he died by noms. I mean, realistically, if anything, maybe he'd suffered and worked himself really, really hard beyond what his body was capable during his exile, and then came back and died of the consequences, but... I mean, he also could have been ill. He also could have been... There There are reports that say that maybe he knew he was about to die, and so Lucius kind of set up one of his archdeacons, Stephen, to be his successor. But um, this could be a convenient story in hindsight, because Stephen will be our next pope. See, now you told me. Could have just told me before. I could have, but I have to leave you in as much suspense as possible. We gotta have to have something to talk about as we go on. So yeah, um, we've decided noms. Mm -hmm. That is now historical fact. But not like, not like lion noms. Let's get nommed by something cool, like a ostrich. Well, he's at the beach. Ooh, Could shark. he be nommed by sharks? Oh no, that's mean. Well, nomming is never nice. <laughs> sharks don't like how we taste. Let's pick like a barracuda or something. All right. Hold on. I'm just going to look up if they have piranhas. <laughs> I don't think they have. I think that's a, a South American thing. But that would have been hilarious. Killer whale? Okay, but hang on. Rome has a native population of green parrots because of an accident, so anything is possible. Some piranha showed up. So we're just going to go with nommed by Barracuda. That's why they keep exiling them to that beach. The water is not good for vacations. Okay, well now it's fact. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about how Pope Lucius I died, let's be clear. After being nommed by Barracudas, what they have left of him is buried at the papal crypt of the catacombs of Calixtus, and part of his tombstone is still there. But weirdly, the Liber Pontificalis copy that I have expands upon this and says that he was buried in the tomb, but in a sand pit? Why do they have a sand pit in there? Don't know. This is, this, I don't know if the copy I have has a weird trans, mistranslation going on there, because this makes zero sense, and the, I've looked up 
newer copies, more recent copies, and that part is removed. I need to know why there's a sand pit. Maybe because he was so mangled from the barracudas that they just, you know, to keep all of the body parts together, they just have a big vat of sand. Yeah, they had to take the sand. They just had to take him all from the beach. You knew this was going to happen. I didn't. I was like, yeah, let's go with Sea Monster. And you're like... No, I had completely forgotten. So I had completely forgotten about the idea of Chivita Vecchia being the beach holiday exile. So this is what we call accidental excellence. (laughs) In a sandpit. But in the 700s, his body was removed to San Silvestro by Pope Paul I. And then eventually moved again by Pope Pascal in the 800s to the Basilica of St. Praxedes or to St. Cecilia in Trastevere. Now, did they dust the bones off first or did they take the sand with them? They took the whole thing of sand. (laughs) 100%. It's fact now. So when I go back to St. Cecilia in Trastevere, because I couldn't go in last time because of the wedding, uh, I will find the box of sand. (laughs) I'm very sorry, any college student listening to us. Oh, God, don't use us as a as an academic source. Or do. We're, we're on lists, like, here's some academic sources. Well, I mean, we, we do use academic sources. This is an academically viable podcast. The research is legit. But um, just listen carefully for when we're riffing. And if you're not and you cite us, that's, that's your fault. Uh, <laughs> But anyways, this is not the end of his remains story, because like Cornelius, he's going to go on an adventure and get a legend for himself. So (sighs) the box of sand is going to travel. (laughs) Okay, so apparently in the 1100s, Lucius's head was taken to Roskilde just outside of Copenhagen in Denmark. And this was apparently done after Lucius was declared to be the... Spoiler, new patron saint of Zealand, which is the largest island of Denmark and where most of Copenhagen is. Oh, there is a Zealand? Is that why there is a New Zealand? Essentially. <laughs> I was today years old when I learned this. <laughs> There's also a Sealand, but that's an entirely different thing. So the story goes that in this area, especially in Isiafjord, had been plagued by demons who were wreaking havoc. And it just so happens that Lucius's skull is the only thing that they fear. So when it arrives on the island, it chases away all the demons and brought peace to the area again. So from that point on, the skull is considered a national relic and has been preserved. Okay, so it, like, flies around and, like, like a Pac-Man. Oh, we're going to go through its journey. So the status as a national relic actually protected Lucius's skull through the Reformation in Denmark, because instead of being destroyed as a symbol of Catholic idolatry, it was set on exhibition by King Frederick III, who had a a penchant for oddities, to say the least. Uh, Apparently, in the same exhibit that he had the skull of Pope Lucius, he also had a petrified human embryo that had been carried inside of a woman for 28 years. That's too long. You need to take that out. Clearly, they did. Um, maybe, maybe she was not alive when they took that out, so. 
Yeah, he he had a a thing for for weird stuff, you know, P.T. Barnum style. This protected it, right, from being destroyed in the Reformation because it was one of the king's cool trinkets. So then in 1867, the skull comes into possession of the Oslo University. Now, it was while it was in the hands of the university that the skull was studied and carbon-14 dated, where it was determined that the skull they had was definitely too young to actually be the skull of Pope Lucius. Oh, no. Yeah, it was dated to about 340 to 431, which is, like, so far after Lucius died. So, um, initially there was some hope that the skull had been accidentally switched up with the one of the Norwegian king, Sigurd Jorsofar, that they also had at the university, but considering that he lived in 1090, and that's well historically documented, that's also ruled out. Stop getting heads mixed up. Why do you have so many skulls that you're getting them confused? Yeah, well, you know, it's a university. They gotta do studies and stuff. They need a better cataloging system. I'm pretty sure they have one now. I mean, this was 1867. Basics. Um, well, I mean, it was 1867 when they got it. It obviously was much later when it was carbon dated, so I should clarify. Now, despite the fact that this skull was definitely not of Pope Lucius by, like, a hundred years. They then donate the skull to the Roskilde Cathedral, and it's a relic of the church still. Here's a skull. It's not a pope. It's not a pope, but let's say it's a pope. Then does it Pac-Man some demons away? And in 1908, it was moved to Ansgar Kirke, where it's still preserved today in a reliquary. So, with his journey covered, we now need to rate him. Papatum infallium. Okay, so he upholds Cornelius's position and keeps the rest of the church together. He condemns the Novatian Schism. And at this point, the sources say that Novatianism, though it would go on to survive for centuries in the peripheral areas of the church, the fact that Lucius maintained a strong continuity and position of universal forgiveness for the church quashed most of its influence in the main areas. So that's a pretty big deal. That's that he's he's actually like reinforcing what Cornelius did, but on a level that makes it long lasting. And then, of course, we have Cyprian's letters, which are reinforcing the esteem and influence to the position of Pope, because he's such a fanboy. But, I mean, as weak as this is as a point, it's still looked at pretty evidentiary. So a lot of historians, when they're looking back at this period in the 3rd century, they go, look at how much Cyprian was deferent to the Pope. That's probably a big deal. What do you think he deserves for Papatum and Valium? I don't, uh, like three. A three? I'm not feeling it. I'm just, I can't get it up. That's fair. I'm going to give him a five because I think really confirming that position, not just taking the initial stance, but confirming it once it had already caused a splendor in the church, really doubles down. And this is a fairly universal position, so I think he gets a little bit of extra points for me from that. That's going to give him an 8 for Papadum and Valium. Fructus prohibitum? He did not have enough time to have a scandal. So he's going to get a 0 for that. Merp. Merp. 
secular rai impactum. Well, he has an impact in Denmark. He is chasing demons away and becoming a national relic. And that's pretty secularly impactful. So, yeah, I'm going to give him some points for that. I don't know about you. I give him a couple points. I mean, whatever, like a three again. I think basically I can get to three with this man before I go, eh. All right, I'm going to give him a two. He's getting a five for his Danish adventures. Fossium Sanctus. So now we need to look at this man's face. I am going to send you his traditional image. All right, let's see it. There it is. He's got a nice fork in his beard. Yeah, he definitely has a forky beard. Yeah, he's... That's a man. His his tonsure's a bit longer, you notice? Like, his hair is longer than the other popes have been lately. Yeah, it doesn't go all the way around either. Mm-hmm. I guess because he's balding. Definitely balding. I don't even know if it's a tonsure. He's got hair on the top of, the top of his head, too. Unless that's a weird bump. I think it's a bunny poof. Just a very blonde bunny poof. Like, he is a blonde man. It could be a goiter or a tumor. <laughs> Aren't goiters on your throat? <laughs> I've got a goiter on my forehead. A mole? I don't know. <laughs> oh, man. A growth. He's got a distinctive brow setting. I, I mean, I like the brows. They're good. He's got good brows. Yeah, he's got that squared off at the corner brow there thing going on. So what do you want to give him? A three? No. Look, he's not... Uh, okay, I don't know if I like his... Whatever's going on with the upper part of his beard there. Why is it so dark? Well, because he's a blonde man, and then that's, like, all the white bits coming off of it. You know, when you see somebody who's just starting to go gray, and, like, around their chin, it's still brown or whatever, mm -hmm. and then it's... Yeah. That's what's happening. Alright, I'll give him, like, a four. I think that's fair. I think I'll give him a four, too, because I was thinking... Middle of the road. Yeah, kind of middle of the road. He's kind of getting all of his points from me for his brow, because I like a good set of eyebrows. So he's going to get a two for Facium Sanctus. Now, okay, so this is the other photo of him, and there is there is a distinctive difference. This is a much, much younger man, okay? Whoever draws these just has not improved. Yeah, it's pretty terrible. So I just want you to look at picture one and picture two. And I want you to keep that in mind for when we go over his Tempus Pontificus. He's still got some great brows, though. He does. But those ones are like drag queen brows, whereas the other one are like what I would consider sexy man brows. Yeah. So, mm, different. And finally, here is his reliquary. Huh. The skull is inside of that. They didn't give him a hat. They gave him a... Half of a head. Yeah. I don't know why he has half of a head. It's kind of an impressive reliquary. Like, it actually looks like a human being. Yeah, it looks a lot like his... I don't know. It looks a lot like his first painting. It's got the longer hair. It's got the kind of real sunken eyes. Look at his eye bags. That poor man. He definitely had these done after going to his beach vacation. Yep. He's still got good brows, though. Yeah. Mm, you know what? I almost want to increase his score just for good brows. I'm not gonna, but I want to. Anyone who knows me, that's like, that's my one attraction factor more than anything else is a man's got to have good brows or it's a deal breaker. So yeah, I, I'm noticing. 
I'm noticing you, Lucius. Got some luscious eyebrows. Lucius of the luscious eyebrows. What would Pope Linus say? They could be friends. We just have to collect a lot. We need a luscious nose and some luscious earlobes and some luscious locks and a luscious chin. I don't know. We are definitely going to get up to a very, very famous Ishus Pope, if you will. So maybe he can be a luscious something. Tempus Pontificus. Okay, so remember I said, look at those two photos of a very, very changed man. So he was Pope from the 25th of June, 253, to March 5th, 254. Less than a year. Oh, beach vacation just did it in. That's ten months. How long was the beach vacation? Uh, 253. So kind of right in the middle there. It depends on when he was sent. It's not dated. But we can assume somewhere between, like, August and October. So maybe three to five months? Maybe a little bit longer? Party too hard. So he gets rounded up to a year for this, and that gives him 0.25. Tempest Pontificus. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. Yes, he is a saint. Feast day, March 5th. Interestingly, his feast day was not inserted until 1602. That's when he got his feast day. And then in 1621, it was reduced to a commemoration. And then in the 1969 version, it was actually removed again because he's definitely not a martyr. He's still mentioned in the Roman Martyrology, which says, In the cemetery of Callistus on the Via Appia, Rome, burial of St. Lucius, Pope, successor of St. Cornelius, for his faith in Christ, he suffered exile and acted as an outstanding confessor of the faith with moderation and prudence in the difficult times that were his. He is a patron saint, like we've said. So he is the patron saint of Zealand, and he also comes up as maybe being the patron saint of Copenhagen. But when you Google patron saint of Copenhagen, you will get King Canute IV, and he is mostly cited as the patron saint of Denmark and not actually Copenhagen, so they could be patron saints together. But he's a he's a real patron saint. So that brings us to look at his final score, which is a 16.25. Oh, we had some high, high rankers, and now we've gone back down to the teens club. Yeah, so, I mean, considering he only had a year, that's pretty good. Yeah. I'll take it. Then we have to ask ourselves this final question. No. No, mm, not feeling it. He does not deserve a papal bull. If I can't even get past three, how do I get to bull? Well, you just can't get the papal bull up for this man. And that's okay. As much as I like his eyebrows, that's all he's got for me. So, yeah. Sorry, Lucius. Straight to purgatory. But that is not all, because we have thank yous to make, and the first that we definitely need to make is for Saga Thing, who, on their Flow Amana Saga Part 2, they recommended us and said very nice things about us. John has been very amused with our forky beard measuring <laughs> <laughs> with him, so that went over well, <laughs> which is... Glad he wasn't offended. That we were raiding his face. Yeah, yeah no, he's... He, w he was cool with it. So thank you to them. That is awesome. 
And of course, thank you to our Rexypod family, Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium as well. Us, them, and Saga Thing, we are the Rexiest Pod family, and they're all wonderful. So thank you to the Roman and Byzantine History Group on Facebook as well for bolstering us up, and thank you to all of you who are listening now. We are still climbing up there, even on the weeks where we don't release an episode, so that is really cool. Oh, and if you heard about us from somewhere... We want to thank people. Please tell us. Yeah, let us know, because recently we have been getting reviews that say that people have found us in certain places that we were not aware of. My Google foo has failed. Yeah, and we were just like, oh, oh, we need to thank this person. So please let us know if we if you found us somewhere interesting, if you found us from another podcast, an article. a tweet, whatever it is, please let us know so we can share the love. And also a huge thank you to Devin from the Human Circus podcast, whose promo you heard at the beginning of the episode. And he aired one for us on his show. His show's fantastic. It's it's really wonderful. He goes through all of the like medieval world travel and bits of the crusade and there's a lot of bits of popey people in there so i highly recommend that you check that one out as well at humancircuspodcast.com we can be found on most major podcatching platforms including spotify you can find us on twitter and facebook as pontifax pod feel free to message us we usually always respond if you want to send us a more long-form message request or otherwise get a hold of us our email is pontifaxpod at gmail.com For our bonus episodes and exclusive content, head over to our Patreon page and donate. That's patreon.com forward slash pontifaxpod. If you feel the need to buy us a tea, because we're not really coffee drinkers, but we do love tea, you can throw us a few bucks in our PayPal account at paypal.me forward slash pontifaxpod. As always, please subscribe and rate and review on iTunes or whatever you use. It really helps us get recommended to other people and allows more people to find us. Thank you, and goodbye. Bye. Ciao.